Hi, this is Andrea Borcha. And I'm Charles Wilchin. This is Farsta. The Internet of Things podcast. This week on Far Stuff. We talked to GE's Julian Keith Lorne about the industrial IoT and bringing big meaning to the industrial Internet of Things. He leads a worldwide collaboration to design and develop operations optimization projects for GE's industrial Internet. Julian, how are you? Great. You've done some really interesting stuff. Like, is your job just the funnest thing ever? <laughs> yes. So the common theme throughout my career has been solving big puzzles. That's what's wonderful about what we're doing at GE right now. Solving big, big puzzles. I mean, like the biggest. Yes. From where they start. Yes. You're not like trying to like slap a, an activity tracker on someone and figure out how many steps they walk. You're like trying to solve fundamental issues related to everything that eventually touches consumers. Yes. Across the broad spectrum, healthcare, transportation, power generation. Yeah. There's some puzzles where... We're trying to solve that are fundamental to all of those and then specific puzzles in each one of those areas. Even when reading up on the industrial internet and the influences it has, it sounds like when the larger puzzles really start coming together, that it even has a really large impact on economics. Yes, we talk about that as the power of one. You know, one sometimes it's 1%. Sometimes, in, for instance, in rail, it's one mile per hour average increase in locomotive speed. But it's easy then for us to say, okay, you know, rather than talk about the entire opportunity size in vague terms, we can talk specifically about, okay, if we just have the 1% improvement or the one mile per hour improvement or the one gigawatt per hour, gigawatt hour improvement, then these are the gains. Yeah, it's absolutely enormous. Now, of course, we're chasing gains bigger than 1%, but it just gives you an idea of the opportunity. It's funny because at the scales GE is working at, 1% is life-changing. How do you start to tackle a puzzle this large? So for a long time, you know, we've looked at industrial and commercial spaces. And then we as consumers experience opportunities for improvement, you know, in healthcare or airline operations when we have very long delays and unexpected cancellations. So we, we all know that there are these rooms for improvement. But in the past, where exactly would you intervene? What exactly would you do? That's been difficult to do. We haven't been able to get the data fast enough. We haven't been able to process it. The computation required has been just simply too expensive. You know, some of this is riding on the heels of big data and big compute technologies and providers. You know, for, for GE, it's obvious we've been, we understand that. You know, that's our pivotal investment. That's our Amazon partnership. That's our other big data and big compute partnerships and investments. The big thing to solving the puzzles, though, is is not just that, right? That's just potential value. We need to see all the, the interplay in these large dynamic environments and be able to map those and track those and really find the best or close to the best thing, we, the thing that we could do and do that quickly. And so that's where we talk about big context. I think you've been discussing that potentially as big meaning. Yeah. That's right. We mean the same thing. You're kind of in this interesting phase where you know there are hot spots where you can pour some water in the form of smart devices that can help you control costs or improve processes. But you're still at the stage where there's so much data and probably so many things to measure that you're kind of putting all those puzzle pieces together right now. We find just with big data and uh, big compute technologies, we'll just map a simple context. 
So I'll give you an example where we looked and we say, if we put smart meters on different heating and ventilation and uh, air conditioning units, and we start to measure outside temperature, we can look for opportunities to use ambient cooling, right? And things like that. And we can get huge gains just by doing those sorts, you know, solving those sorts of puzzles with a very limited number of dimensions. The big gains are as we increase that. We increase and we increase and we increase and we start to look at fluctuations in energy consumption throughout the day. And then what sort of resources we have, what our demand is, where we need to be deploying resources and solving higher and higher dimensionality puzzles. That's that's really that big context piece. So we can get gains right away. You're right. You know, putting smart sensors, creating networks of devices. But it's really as we start to map broader systems of systems that we can ask fundamental questions and, and get really high high value responses. So it's not enough to do this for one department in a factory or maybe even one factory. It's really important to do this through the whole, uh, I guess, the life cycle of the process or the thing being created or the service being provided. Yes. How do you do this? Do you work with GE customers? Is there a period of buy-in? I mean, how, how does that process start with a company? In many cases, you know, they approach us. Once they understand what we're talking about when we say industrial internet, this self-optimizing industrial internet of things, we have a lot of people banging down our doors now and saying, you know, could you help us solve our big perplexing puzzles first? So they've heard of this succeeding somewhere. Oh, that's right. Yes. So I think you mentioned factories. We have hundreds of factories. So this has proven a wonderful place for us to develop these capabilities, to map these environments, to really go fast. If you think a lot about a lot of other software players or even hardware players in the M2M and IoT space, they don't necessarily have that, right? Very large scale, complex industrial environments. We do. So that's allowed us to go fast. And then, of course, we have partnerships with you know, airlines that see the opportunities, hospitals and hospital networks that see the opportunities. And so we can definitely go fast in those areas as well. But manufacturing is a place where it's our data. Um, <laughs> there are factories. We get the immediate benefit so we can go very, very fast. Gotcha. So these are GE's factories. You've been able to sanity check these processes in the real world and show real results. Yes. And, and our manufacturing, of course, we, we don't just deliver products. We deliver products and then all these value-added services on top of them. So you talked about mapping not just the factory, but the larger ecosystem. So yes, there's the su mapping the supply chain coming into the factory is critical because so many times that's actually where you... You need to know something early so you can respond correctly. You need to know that a grinding tool is going to be late or some raw material is going to be late. But then also, we provide all these services out in the field. So us now having sensors out in the field and data coming back. For instance, we had data coming back from Africa, from mobile providers using our industrial batteries coming back into our battery plant and into our not only our manufacturing process, but informing also our product enhancement, product engineering. So that's a fabulous, big, long-lived <laughs> ecosystem, right? Tracking a product through its whole life cycle. So you're tracking the product not only through manufacturing, but even once it's into the consumer's hands, you're sort of tracking their experience with that product through its life cycle with them. Yes. So that the next time they buy a battery from you, it's even better. Yes. I wonder how much more challenging does it get when you move into a realm that much more heavily relies on human interaction, for example, like in the medical field? Does it further complicate things because humans are such just a bigger part of the equation? Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, we do. We're marvelous at making and making it more more challenging, let's say, to understand context. 
but that's also, those are the exciting frontiers as well. You've probably seen some of the contests we ran on Kaggle, these GE quests. We ran one there where we were looking at, at fuel efficiency for airlines. And it's mar- marvelous because Kaggle is a platform for various data scientists, optimization scientists to come together as teams and collaborate to win prizes. It's sort of like Netflix did a big challenge like this a few years ago. And so like the Netflix challenge, it's, it's, it's not solo rock star data scientists uh-huh, who win yeah. the contest. It's collaborative teams who come together and create large ensemble models. So we ran one where it was really hard science-based models, physics-based models, and we were able to get remarkable results back. Then we ran another one that was around health, which was much more open-ended. We were asking you know, of all the interventions you could do, what would you do? And getting much more into overall quality of care. And so it wasn't just looking at hard data and looking for the patterns in the data. It was then looking at processes, how they could be improved, how business models could change, what people might or might not do, behavioral economics, right? Psychology, how we could motivate different, better, healthier behaviors. Through this process, have you come across any like really interesting or unexpected revelations that came as a surprise? Yes, actually, that once you get away from problems, you know, one right answer based on hard science, it's often very counterintuitive. Really? I'm trying, I'm trying to think of which examples I can give from GE. Which are not under NDA. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. Well, well, because that's the thing, they're counterintuitive. They're also very, very valuable once you find them. I see. Sure. That makes sense. They're absolute gems. So let me think, actually, maybe I can give you an example that's enough years back where it wouldn't be confidential. I'll give you an example from airline operations. Right now, when something unexpected happens last minute, as you probably experienced in an airport, the default is for the operations chief to let that delay sort of sit where it is. So you're in St. Louis, you're going to board a plane for Denver, and last minute they found that there was something with not quite right with the landing gear. And so... They tell you it's going to be 45 minutes to fix that. And and so you sit there and wait. And then if it turns into a longer problem, eventually they're going to reassign you to another plane, right? They're going to find some other way to cover it. But that's the default behavior. The reason is because it's been impossible to see all the interconnections and to figure out net-net what would be the best place to reallocate that. So if I'm the operations chief in St. Louis and I have 12 planes in right now, the probability of the delay you know, to Denver being the best place to leave it is fairly low. Denver, there's going to be a lot of connecting flights again. There may be other places where there'd be less connections, uh, Albuquerque, for instance. But I really, I really need to know that. I need to look at where those passengers are going in the end, any connections that I can see, okay, ones that are within my airline or my alliance partnership, how baggage needs to move, fuel, fuel economy, the crew, how the crew is moving plane to plane through the network. And so there are all these cascading effects that go on. And, and I mentioned fuel, and that seems a little weird, but every airline and every air traffic control crew doesn't have the same policy in terms of how they let late planes come in. So in some cases, with some air traffic control, they'll make you circle until there's the next available slot. And sometimes they'll let you in as soon as you get there and then shuffle everyone else back, make everyone else a little bit later. Right. And actually, now that I've told you that, you're going to notice that as you do air travel. <laughs> I am going to, for sure. Yeah. You're going to notice sometimes that you were 45 minutes late and then you were made to circle so long at the arriving airport that 45 minutes turned into an hour and a half. And Julian, is that because they don't have the data on which is better for that scenario? Uh, that's more that's more policy. 
that's one of the things too. There are so many interconnections and sometimes you want to look and make recommendations. As we get better and better at this, we'll then be able to make a case to the FAA, to other regulating bodies, to set standards and say, this is the way to do it because otherwise, look at this additional fuel consumption, look at this additional impact you didn't, couldn't necessarily see before. This stuff you're doing is not just about cutting costs. It's not just improving product or improving services. You're going to actually be able to change policy based on hard data that we haven't previously been able to gather. That's right. Now we can't see those, I call them interweaving butterfly effects, but all those, those cause and effect threads that cross each other and collide occasionally. When we have things that are counterintuitive, we can't explain and they make us scratch our head, we deploy these teams historically, sort of these root cause analysis SWAT teams, if you will, some very, very talented teams doing that. They find things that they were deployed exactly because there was something that couldn't be explained. It wasn't showing up in the data where we didn't see the connections. And so they'll track those down. Now, as we map those environments ahead of time and we see all these interconnections and we see the connection I just described to you between fuel consumption, uh, additional delay, right? So now a 45-minute delay going to an hour, becoming an hour and a half delay, right? And and all the bad knock-ons because of that, because it just it, it just became a bigger problem. Because we're we're tracking all that and and mapping that, then we can see those ahead of time. So what we want to see is that if somebody operates a piece of equipment in an abnormal way or in a very let's say unfriendly environment, and we have mapped this enough to say, well, 80% of the time that results in lower return on asset, I mean, or unplanned downtime. Now, instead of waiting for the first manifestation in the physical world, we can actually see the root cause way out in the map and maybe days or weeks ahead of time. And then if our customer or if our factory, if it's, if it's worth a customer, can't for some reason change that. They're under time pressure, they have to meet quota, they have to operate in this way. We at least have time to then do contingencies. So if I describe right now what generally happens, we'll have sensors uh, or instrumentation on an engine, on a turbine, on some kind of motor, on on a machine. And we'll look for manifestations in the physical world, temperature spikes, different kinds of vibration that are abnormal or combinations of all these different readings. That's our first manifestation in the physical world, that there's a high probability that something needs to be replaced, some repair needs to be done. So we can give early warning. That's tremendously valuable, and we do a lot of that. In terms of operationalizing that, we've come after afterwards, and this is why we have such great capability for solving these big puzzles already within G, is because after that, you say, well, you just gave me some bad news. <laughs> now, <laughs> now, now please, in, in, this, in this big puzzle of an environment I'm working in, please help me solve how to act on that news with the best possible outcome in the, in the very best possible way. And since a lot of times with that bad news is also abnormal news, we don't necessarily know how to do that. Our operation, operational procedures are about when things every, everything is going well, not necessarily <laughs> about when unexpected things happen. Right. So that's wonderful. So we've, we have a lot of expertise around that. A lot of those products are called recovery products. So for instance, we have a suite of products for aviation when we know with enough advanced warning that an air, airport is going to close because of weather, we can solve and solve and solve these big puzzles. Is it true to say that you're not only responding, but you're predicting or simulating events all the time? Yeah. So that's been the problem, right? Is we talk about predictive as those first, the first manifestations in the physical world, being able to interpret them so that we can predict the probability of 
you know, unplanned downtime. We already call those predictive analytics. When we now map this Internet of Things, so we have this cause and effects relationships and we analyze those. And now we don't wait for a manifestation in the physical world. We see the precursors to it in operational procedure. We see you're going to have a backup in the ER in five hours because of the way that you're using your staff right now, you know, five hours earlier. That's what we want to see. We want to see things way ahead of time. I almost want to call those preemptive. Uh-huh. <laughs> some, some, somehow I can't say predictive because predictive is already, for us, is already owned it's in that. It's a thing, yeah. right. Yeah, that first, those physics-based analytics and the first manifestation in the physical world. So it's pre-predictive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so for example, with your engine example, how much of the analytics is actually embodied in the thing itself? So how much computing power does it actually have? Does it process all of the strange vibrations it's feeling and and all the data itself and then just communicate out saying, oh, this is the part that needs to be fixed? Or at this point, is it just more of data gathering and then transmitting that to a human somewhere that then can interpret that and understand what might need to be changed? Yeah, there we have a whole range. So we have some light analytics that are running right on a device and can adjust settings for better performance. Then we have some cases where, you know, sort of on the other end, the data is transmitted up to the cloud and you're doing a very big solve. So there's, and there's the whole, the whole, whole range in between. For Internet of Things optimization, it is important that we distribute the work and we distribute the analysis as much as possible. It's when we get to really big operational puzzles, especially if we have to do simulation, we have to do big what ifs. Which you can imagine, for instance, when I talked about the airline recovery scenario. That's just too much work for one little engine to do. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's a huge amount of compute. Or when I talked about bringing that closer to real time, where the operations chief now has an unexpected 45-minute delay and wants to figure out you know, where to best allocate that. So we want to play every possible allocation forward through the day. So we don't get two airports down or three airports down and then find, oh, no, we just did the worst possibly could have done. We have to have that all in view. Do you have to get participation from all the airports to make that work? Right now, you know, we're working with the data that we can get from from airlines. And then we have the historical data about what I described around air traffic control, which is important also for our solve. We'd like to get more real-time data and more real-time connections. And that's from from that as well. And so that's that's another journey we're on. Are there even examples of interconnection between like airlines and railway that you that you try to deal with? Oh, and then when we have connected cars that drive themselves, maybe it'll just, <laughs> right. just, just speak to, you know, just say that I want to get to Dallas from here. And then or a flight and the car will pick you up and know where you're going and then the plane and then the train and you'll just everything will just be waiting for you. Well, that's exactly it. We often now when we do solve puzzles, we optimize locally and suboptimize globally. So we work out our ground transportation perfectly, and then we get to the airport, and the flight and the flight is delayed. <laughs> oh no! <Yeah. laughs> Why did I hurry so much? Um, you know. So yes, yes, we do this. A lot of our customers too in the industrial and commercial world, they are working at the systems of systems level. So, for instance, for mining, we have a big mining business. Now, you mean actual mining or data mining? I mean, actual mining. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Actually, that was a valid question. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> just wanted I just, to clarify. You probably do I both, just, I guess. That's right. We do, we do both. <laughs> so in this case, actual mineral extraction. And then some of our bigger customers also own the railways that transport the ore. And then we also have solutions in transportation for managing port facilities. And so now we're taking and saying, well, 
That's great. So actually, I should really give credit to all the pieces. <laughs> we have mining solutions that help with the extraction. We have solutions that help a grinding circuit have 15 to 20% higher throughput or yield. Very, very valuable solutions for mining operations. Then we have transportation solutions in terms of the way you load, the way you profile the train for aerodynamics. We have amazing solutions in rail transportation. And then we have solutions for uh, port management. Now, the point with industrial internet play is to say, okay, well, what other solutions? What didn't I mention? Well, stockpiling strategy, right? We want to know how to stockpile or optimally, right? We want a 360 degree view. So we aren't just optimizing extraction based on uh, use of equipment, but also based on our capacity to process it and our capacity to ship it and demand in the marketplace, ideally. We'd really like our, our operations to be tuned to the market, tuned to demand, tuned to revenue growth and tuned to cost reduction all at the same time. It seems like you have a great opportunity because you touch almost every single piece of the supply chain. You can leverage that to create a larger efficiency that each individual piece could never do on their own. Yes. Yes, that's right. So what do you do with, with all this data? Does, does GE use cloud services? Is GE its own cloud service? It seems like that a lot of this data is probably pretty sensitive, and I can imagine there might be hesitation to trust vendors like uh, Amazon and Google with it. How do you deal with all that? So there's been a couple of trends there. A lot of the vendors are getting great certifications from different regulatory bodies. So right now, a lot of the cloud provider we use is, is by industry. On top of that, you're right. Our data is has to be very, very secure. So we have an entire industrial cybersecurity group and we've made investments in World Tech and ThetaRay that we've announced. And we have a lot of additional investments in industrial cybersecurity. So you're, you're right. But the two things are coming together. We are getting better and better and better technologies. And on the other hand, the, the industry is getting more and more secure. And as a lot of things happen early on, you know, one of the cloud providers will go get a certification for a certain type of aviation data. Another one will go get a certification for a certain type of health data. They're sort of, it's almost looks, from the outside, it looks coordinated. It looks like divide and conquer. It's very, it's beautiful, right? It gives us very good coverage. Nice. <laughs> um, it also means that right out of the gate, we're playing with a lot of different cloud providers and that gives us tremendous flexibility. So we add all this, we take the fundamental ownership for governance and for security, but it gives us an ability to really play across the providers, you know, just to make sure we get the speed, the SLA, you know, meet data export restrictions, et cetera. You have all that big data. And then who are the teams that are actually creating that context and meaning from, from that giant pile of bits? Historically, we've had fairly small teams. When I talked about operations optimization, we often call that operations research or management science. And um, so we had fairly small teams that would do a lot of interviewing and build these models that would contain that big context and allow us to solve these puzzles. Increasingly, what we have to do is distribute that work. First of all, distribute it to experts in the field. If we give them mechanisms for entering that, that information without having to understand some sort of advanced modeling or advanced IoT mapping technology, that's one case. That's what we're doing now is having easy, non-intimidating ways to collect that and, and pull that together. And the other thing then is different kinds of inference technologies, inference engines. What are they responsible for, the inference engines? In most cases, 
the operational relationships aren't represented in your underlying data. So we have siloed data sets. We'll have this enterprise system that might have things about your employees and another enterprise system that has information about your equipment and another enterprise system that has information about your power consumption. And the relationship between those, the, the real world, real time operational interplay isn't usually represented in those, in those underlying systems. So the inference engines and those kinds of technologies are to help us at least sketch out the map and then have human experts come and instead of having to build it all from scratch, they can then say, is that a correct relationship? In many cases, they'll say, yes, that's a correct relationship, but it's only true under these conditions. Is that what you guys call the industrial cloud? So the industrial cloud is our security and governance on top of our own cloud resources and third-party cloud resources. You know, when you talk about big compute, that's the industrial cloud. This is what we talk about is big context when we create these large IoT maps so and, and all the technologies that go with that. So there are a lot of players emerging right now in what I would call, you know, Internet of Things Business Intelligence, IoT BI. And those are characterized by relying, yes, on IoT maps, but not doing anything to help you build them with higher, greater speed and automation or keep them up to date. And that's okay for business intelligence, right? We're often looking at historical trends, averages, means, these kinds of things, right? Probabilities versus absolutes. That's exactly it. But when you're providing decision support, the map has to be up to date. I have to know who's here right now. I have to know their current skill sets, training, certification, what they're capable of doing. I just I have to know where my raw materials are moving and flowing or which patients I have and what conditions they have. I, I, I need an up-to-date map. Um, otherwise, I can't provide good recommendations. So our play is really IoT optimization versus IoT business intelligence, if that helps. I think if I understand what you're saying, um, it's you're saying it's not enough to just know what's happening. Well, with the hospitals, too, I mean, I'd love to see how, how much more efficient a hospital can run. But a hospital also is part of a bigger ecosystem. So, you know, we have so many healthcare reforms right now that are pushing us to solve these puzzles faster. So some of the reform is around appropriate use of emergency room capacity. And so if hosp hospitals know that they won't get reimbursements if they have people that didn't really need to be in the emergency room and were treated in the emergency room anyway. A lot of hospitals, when they're doing audits to find out where the inappropriate use is coming from, a lot of it's coming from skilled care facilities, often from nursing homes. So when we look at the root cause, when we try to track back in this network, we typically have an elderly or frail person. There's a liability concern. There's the wishes of the family, you know, to make sure they're properly cared for. And so even if it's a non-emergency situation, they'll call the ambulance. So then they call the ambulance and the default routing is to the emergency room. And then you have somebody in the emergency room who may not be able to advocate for themselves well, right, in a crowded and busy emergency room with a wait. That's not a good situation. And then fundamentally, they may have a problem that it may be chronic but not dangerous. There may be 10 other places in the hospital where they could be better treated, right? And it's also, it's also not safe for them to be in the emergency room in terms, in terms of people coming in there with contagious diseases, et cetera, right? Okay, so, so we have a non-ideal situation, but think about that. We can't just take the data from the hospital. Now what we'd really like to do is we, we want to know, yes, the history of medical treatment, medical conditions. The nice thing about the skilled nursing facility is we also have a history of a medication, tracking of medication. Right. So we can we can get all these things. 
And now what we need to do is actually also have the ambulance as part of that system. So in transit, the EMTs can look, and, and they also are collecting data on you know, vital signs, condition, if possible. You know, some of it is actually a, a verbal interview. But all of that needs to be processed in some way where ideally, in most cases, we would have a good idea by the time they arrived at the hospital. And if not, we would have recommendations for you know, let's do these tests or let's ascertain these things in triage. And then we can very quickly get this patient to the place where they can be best cared for. What an enormous combination of problems to solve. But if you can, yeah, it would just change everything. Yeah. And so those are that's another example of siloed systems. Right now, the data in the skilled nursing facility or nursing home is they are not accessible, even though it's being collected at a system of system level. And, and then the same thing for the data in the ambulance, there's, there's a handoff of paperwork, right? But, but we really need that to be in digital form and to be processed, analyzed, right, and worked on by the time the ambulance pulls up to the emergency room. So it seems like the first level is make sure that data is being collected in, in some sort of transferable way. And then secondly, then you can connect the data to kind of get a, a much more clear picture. I mean, that, that would be amazingly efficient if as somebody's being picked up from the nursing home, by the time they get to the hospital, they know exactly where they should be, who should be talking to them. They're set and ready to take them in for whatever they need, and they can get in and out in 10, 15 minutes if it was a, a relatively simple fix, yes. so to speak. Yes. It sounds like you're very intimately involved in process changes between these silos. And policy changes, really. I mean, even with the airline example, I'm sure in healthcare, there's a lot of room for improving processes. And that would be really impressive if that's possible, because from what I've seen, the medical industry sometimes is a little hesitant to employ new systems. But if it delivers what it promises, it, it sounds like a, a great option for them. Yes. And, and now there's, there's real momentum behind some of those changes because of healthcare reform. Right now, it seems like you're in this interesting state where you're putting all the, the pieces on the board. You know, you're, you're helping people get a view onto their operations like they've never had before. But at some point, that'll be, quote unquote, done. How long is that going to take for this really fundamental change in how everything works? I don't think it'll be at the same speed in all industries, as we guess. These, this industrial Internet sweet spot from a technology side is where we're bringing together big data technologies, big compute and big context. And so I just talked about, you know, two that are mature, big data and big compute, and then big context, which we're helping develop. So big context, just as big data was not about a data warehouse, we've had those forever. It was about exponentially faster, cheaper, and easier. And just as big compute was not about a cray, you know, it was about exponentially faster, cheaper, and easier. Um, and I'll give you an example. One of our factories, they were looking at $4 million of hardware spend to do these large, massively parallel simulations, uh, operational simulations, and $1.5 million each additional year as a burn rate. We were able to do that for less than $100,000, right, using big compute capabilities. That's exponentially cheaper, and we were able to do it much faster, much faster deployment. We need the same thing for big context. That's what we're working on right now. So rather than it taking you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars to and half a year, a year, two years to model a complex environment, we need to make that tens of thousands of dollars and days or weeks. Okay, that's exponentially faster, cheaper, easier on the big context side. So that's the frontier that we're pushing. 
then you ask about, you know, which industries can we go? And then it'll be about openness to adoption, the kinds of pressures they're under. You know, there are very positive pressures our aviation business is under, right? Because <laughs> there's just tremendous demand and we have such marvelous product. Same thing with transportation. We have marvelous products across, but then we know there's a lot of pressure happening right now on oil and gas. That whole world is changing radically right now. Healthcare, there are pressures, like we mentioned, from regulations, but there are also a lot of positive pressures because we're starting to see these opportunities for just making a quantum leap forward in terms of quality of care and outcomes, patient outcomes. You know, I'm, I'm very focused on the, on the technologies, on getting these first pieces so we can solve these puzzles much more quickly and at scale. But the fun is going to be, is going to be you know, we, we joke about, you know, unexpected delays in airline operations being so rare that you, you become nostalgic, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Do you think you can actually get to a point of complete understanding of an industry where there's just no more mystery at all as to why anything's not working perfectly? We're 100% optimized. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> the one thing I'll say that also makes these puzzles fascinating is these operational puzzles, there's not one right answer based on hard science. We talk about the global optimum, but we know that it also moves. <laughs> uh, that's Darn it. That's why big context is so vital for us to see you know, where a bottleneck is moving or where, where the constrained resource is right now. And I imagine it moves not only within an industry, but as other industries' goalposts move, yours does too. Right. Which is exciting. Yeah. Absolutely. The world is full of puzzles. This has been a fascinating conversation. It's been, for me, really interesting to hear all the stuff that GE touches. Keep making my products cheaper and my healthcare better. <laughs> Thank you very much for the opportunity. Yes, it's always fun to talk about this. And I appreciate, too, your perspective already on, uh, on big meaning and big context. It's, it's fun to talk about what that means. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to GE's Julian Keith Lauren on the Internet of Things podcast, Far Stuff. You can find us on the Internet at farstuff.com and at farstuff on Twitter. Get in touch with us using the contact form at farstuff.com or email us at podcast at farstuff.com. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a shiny happy review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To get the best Internet of Things news every week, sign up for our newsletter at farstuff.com. And this brings us to the end of our thing. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everyone.